cultivate the compassion and love that we need to bring to each other and all beings. And uh, he, gave a, he gave a kind of very simple, beautiful practice that was based on cherishing, to spend some minutes each day cherishing our inner life and cherishing the beings that come to mind and then going through the rest of the day and whoever you meet, cherishing them. And, he, and, and the email ends saying, during the day, extend that attitude to everyone you meet. All, all are the same. I cherish myself and you and you and you and stay with the practice no matter what. Just imagine. I mean, there's something in me that gets kind of excited when I think, what if we really kept it simple but really became more intentional about loving each other and loving this life? What if just more moments of each day were kind of guided by that aspiration to, to hold each other with that awareness? kind of to see what's beautiful and to see the suffering and to share compassion. It's our deepest longing. I mean, of all the longings that I find people can even put a word on, this deepest one of loving and being loved, of really having a, a very deep kind of intimacy, a spiritual kind of intimacy, is what we want. And of all the things that we describe that we suffer from feeling separate, not feeling belonging, not feeling love, is where there's the most anguish. Now the suffering from separation can take all sorts of forms. We don't always go around feeling like, oh God, the angst of not belonging. You know, it it registers in little ways, like feeling judgmental, or blaming, or preoccupied are addicted, are inadequate, you know, just not quite complete in how things are right now. Something's missing. Now, there's a catch-22 about intimacy, which everyone knows that I have run into, which is it's the thing we most want and the thing we have the most fears around. Because the more you want something, the more vulnerability there is, right? I hope you're saying right inside. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. The beauty of the Buddhist teachings of mindfulness and compassion, and these are re- this is really the beauty of the teachings from any wisdom tradition, are that they train our awareness to see what's really true. And they cultivate a kind of courage to stay with life even when we're scared. And that's a lot of what's going on, is that we keep hitting an edge of what's scary or frightening or difficult within ourselves or in our relationships. And as our practice deepens, there incrementally is more willingness to hang in there. It's not that the weather systems don't come up where we feel rage and jealousy and anger and really wanting to trash everything. I mean, those things still sweep through, but there's a little more tolerance because we're more connected with what we care about. We care to connect. So that's tonight's topic, this um, cultivating the courage to love fully. 
And I speak of it some, in some Dharma talks as loving our inner life. Tonight I'm going to use the language of love with each other a little more, but it's really loving life, loving life fully. And I'd like to start with a story some of you might remember. I've told it before. It's one of my favorites, and it's an old Inuit story. And if you haven't read Women Who Run With the Wolves, it's in there, and you'll find it there. It's called Skeleton Woman. So listen. She had done something of which her father disapproved, although no one quite remembered what it was. But her father had dragged her to the cliffs and thrown her over and into the sea. And there the fish ate her flesh away and plucked out her eyes, and as she lay under the sea, her skeleton turned over and over in the currents. Now one day a fisherman came fishing. Well, in fact, in truth, he'd only come to this bay once, this time. It was far away from home, and he had drifted, and he didn't know that the local fishermen didn't come to this bay. They thought it was haunted. So the fisherman's hook drifted down through the water and caught, of all places, in the bones of skeleton woman's ribcage. The fisherman thought, oh, now I've really got a big one. Now I really have one. And in his mind, he was thinking of all the people that this fish could feed and just all the the pride of it and how he might be free from the chore of future hunting. But when he turned back with his net, her whole body as it was, had come to the surface and was hanging from the tip of his kayak by her long front teeth. He cried and he screamed and fell and his heart fell into his knees and he tried to hide his terror and get rid of her as fast as he could. He screamed again and again, he knocked her off the prow with his oar and began paddling like a demon toward the shoreline. She stayed right behind. He wailed again and again, and in one leap he was out of his kayak, clutching his fishing stick and running, and the coral-white corpse of the skeleton woman still snagged in the fishing line, bumpity-bump, bumpity-bump, right behind him. The faster he ran... The more he thought he had created some distance, uh uh-uh, bumpity-bump, bumpity-bump. So, finally, he reached his snow house and dove right into the tunnel and on hands and knees scrabbled his way into the interior. Panting and sobbing, he lay there. Imagine when he lit his whale oil lamp, there she, it, lay in a tumble upon his snow floor, one heel over her shoulder, one knee inside her ribcage, one foot over her elbow. He could not say later what it was. Perhaps the firelight softened her features, or the fact that he was a lonely man. But a feeling of some kindness came into his breathing, and slowly he reached out his grimy hands, and using words softly, like a mother to a child, he began to untangle her from the fishing line. Oh, na, 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 oh, na, na, na. First he untangled the toes and the ankles. Oh, na, 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 oh, na, na, na. And on through the night he worked. Until dressing her in furs to keep her warm, skeleton woman's bones were all in the order that a human should be. The man became drowsy, slid under his sleeping skins, and soon was dreaming. And sometimes, as humans sleep, you know, a tear escapes from the dreamer's eye. 
We never know what sort of dream causes this. The, sil- the skeleton woman saw the tear glisten in the firelight and she suddenly became so thirsty. She tinkled and clanked and crawled over to the sleepy man and put her mouth to his tear. The single tear was like a river and she drank and drank and drank until her many years long thirst was slacked. While lying beside him, she reached inside the sleeping man and took out his heart, the mighty drum. She sat up and banged on both sides of it. Bum, 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 bum. And as she drummed, she began to sing out, flesh, 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 flesh. And the more she sang, the more her body filled out with flesh. And when she was all done, she also sang the sleeping man's clothes off and crept into his bed with him, skin against skin. She returned the great drum, his heart, to his body. And that is how they awakened, wrapped one around the other, tangled from their night in another way now, a good and lasting way. The people who cannot remember how she came to her first elf fortune say she and the fishermen went away and were consistently well fed by the creatures she had known in her life underwater. The people say that it is true and that is all they know. Now in this story, Skeleton Woman represents our whole instinctual life, death, life, death process. Who we are is not just a form that's alive, it's a form that gets born and changes and deteriorates and dissolves and then there's birth again without even this question of who am I and who is reborn. Life includes death and that skeleton woman. And the basic theme of the story is that enduring love emerges as we embrace the whole of our being, which means we embrace what's alive and vibrant and radiant and what gets sick and what gets afraid and what dies. The whole, all the cycles, all the seasons. And this is also a description of spiritual awakening, that the path of true awakening is a path of embracing this whole life, of feeling love for all of life. And it starts with the capacity to recognize the life of right this moment. So again, if you will, as we did when we were sitting, feel what is the life of this moment. Just take a breath, drop under ideas, What does it mean to recognize and befriend the life of this moment? You might close your eyes. When we pay attention, we begin to realize that we're all fishing we look through our day, we're fishing. We're fishing for what will feed us. You know, the heart is a lonely hunter. You know, we're, we're always out in some way looking for what will bring more pleasure, bring more comfort, make us feel good about ourselves, bring some ease. 
And we have ideas about what will do that. We have ideas about the fish we want to catch. We want to catch the perfect or good love and the perfect job and the great recognition and the strokes and the perfect holiday. We want to catch a big one, you know, one that will feed us for a long time. We get excited when we sense we're about to catch a big one, that something good's about to happen. And when it comes to intimate relationships, we're very exacting. We have this real fantasy about how the right love will really take care of everything. Now, we all know that expecting uh, perfect love is a setup for disappointment, that even if we have a honeymoon, it's brief. And it's the same thing with our friends. We, we know that if we expect our friends to be perfect, that we're going to always be going around feeling like something's wrong. I'll tell you one of my favorite cartoons. And it's got this picture, I'll leave it up here for you later, but it's this picture of a hut in Africa. And this woman's in this hut and she's got all these little voodoo dolls with pins in them. And her husband's there looking at her going, can't you get along with anybody? has <laughs> got everybody in the village there. So we know that we're in chronic disappointment when we're expecting the loves of our life to meet certain criteria. It always happens, and we always do it with our children and our partners and our friends. We have standards, and they won't meet them. And how much we're hooked on them being a certain way determines how much we feel disappointed. This is the first paragraph from Love's Executioner by Irving Yalom. It's a great line. I do not like to work with patients who are in love. Perhaps it is because of envy. I, too, crave enchantment. Perhaps it's because love and psychotherapy are fundamentally incompatible. The good therapist fights darkness and seeks illumination, while romantic love is sustained by mystery and crumbles upon inspection. I hate to be love's executioner. Now, what does this mean? It doesn't mean that we can't really love and the mystery of love can't be really true. But it does mean that if our love is coded by these ideals of who that person should be and what they should be able to do for us, it's going to fall apart. Then we might find a deeper place of meeting that works, but first that has to fall apart. So we're all fishing and we're all like the fishermen every day in little ways and big ways. We're trying to catch things that we hope will feed us And to the extent that we're waking up on the path, we realize we're doing it and we don't get too invested. But it still goes on. We still get hooked on these different goals, different things we think will feed us. The most obvious ones are the ones that are clearly the most disappointing. If we think we're going to feel better because we lost the weight or because we won the lottery or because we got the promotion, A curse? You should have a lot of money, but you should be the only one in your family with it. (laughs) These are called great Jewish quotes. Why does a woman work for ten years to change a man's habits and then complain he's not the man she married? (laughs) It's Barbara Streisand. Another Yiddish folk saying, if you have money, 
you're wise and good-looking and can sing well too. <laughs> but I think you understand that, that we hook our hopes to things that really cannot produce any sort of deep happiness. We do go fishing and we're trained by our culture too. So what happens is, and it's inevitable, is that every time we get attached to something, every time our sense of self and being okay gets attached, something happens to disillusion us. It's inevitable because everything always changes. No matter what we hold on to, it's bound to change. So this is skeleton woman appearing. In some way, the specter of loss and inevitable death interferes with any one of our fishing projects. Now what happens is we're conditioned as soon as something shows itself to be impermanent to either grasp or run. We're in a relationship with somebody and it's not the way we expected and that person doesn't treat us with the respect we had hoped for and either we start grabbing on and trying to control and make them do it or we run away because we're afraid we can't feel okay about ourselves in their presence. As soon as skeleton woman appears, this vestige of insecurity, we either grasp on or we run away. Some of you are, probably many of you, familiar with Harville Hendricks. He does a lot about couples and imago and so on. And one of his dynamics he describes beautifully is the fuser and the isolator. This is grasping and aversion. The way it goes, and it's in almost every couple I've ever worked with, to some degree, it's not always really imbalanced, but to some degree, that the basic dynamic, the basic insecurities invoke two different responses. One person, because they're uncomfortable and have fears, will try to create more distance, will be what they call commitment phobic, and need space, and always try to create boundaries. The other person, because they're uncomfortable and afraid and feeling incomplete, will try to hold on ever tighter and want to manage things and want that person to be just a certain way. It's all over the place. It's so all over the place we can laugh about it. It's not like there's something really wrong. It's just different versions of how we either run away or grasp on when we get afraid. So the first part of this Inuit story really describes the Buddha's teachings, the first and second noble truth, that we feel incomplete and we're going out trying to find something that'll make us feel more complete all the time. Even moment to moment, we're kind of leaning into what's next so that the next moment will give us what this moment has not. And in that process is when we sense something pleasant, our habit, hold on tight. And of course, as soon as we start holding on tight, there's suffering. If there's something unpleasant, run away fast. And of course, what happens when we run away? What happens when the fisherman tries to run away from skeleton woman? Clankety, clankety, clankety. Okay. So the more attached we are to having it a certain way when we go fishing, that things turn out a certain way, the more of a setup that we'll suffer. Some of you know this now classic Sylvia cartoon where a woman comes to complain to Sylvia in the gu- and Sylvia's in the guise of a fortune teller. And she goes to Sylvia, you know, my husband, he won't talk about his feelings. And Sylvia responds, well, you know, what else is new? Okay, I'll, I'll respond. And so she looks into her crystal ball 
And the woman says, well, what's happening? What's happening? And she says, wait a minute, I'm going into a trance. My guide's about to speak. Then she says, by the end of the year 1999, men are going to begin talking about their feelings. Women all over America will be sorry within minutes. So it's not getting what we want, getting what we don't want. First and second noble truths. So this is what's important, that with whatever love relationship we're in, lovers as in partners, as in friends, as in parents, whichever there is, skeleton woman always will arise. The insecurities, the fears of loss, the fear that something's wrong with us, it will always arise. It arises in our relationship with our inner life and it will arise with each other. So the question isn't, does she arise? But how do we respond to these difficulties? Do we run? The answer is yes, we always run. We always do. Every one of us runs. But for how long? (laughs) I mean, the truth is that when skeleton woman arises, when it feels difficult, we are really fearing major loss and death. I'm going to get rejected. I'm going to die. I'm going to be suffocated. I'm going to lose everything. So it's our fear of death that we're running from. You know, the definition of death? Patrick Henry's second choice. I just had to slide that in. (laughs) So it's very hard to let go of how we're wanting things. And we really create our identity to make ourselves more secure. It's very hard to, to drop wanting things a certain way and let ourselves be secure. This is one of the classic stories about trying to stay secure. In New York's garment district, a little old man was hit by a car. While waiting for an ambulance, the policeman tucked a blanket under the guy's chin and asked, Are you comfortable? The man said, I make a nice living. Helen Keller writes, Security is mostly a superstition. It does not exist in nature, nor do the children of men as a whole experience it. Avoiding danger is no safer in the long run than outright exposure. Life is either a daring adventure or nothing. Now, another way to say that is we can either take the risk to love, which always feels scary, or really feel like we're dying in the most deep way. So it helps to know, to kind of normalize things, that we're all going fishing, that we all grasp onto things, that we're all running away from stuff, And that really spiritual life is becoming aware of how that happens so that we have some choice to begin to maybe let go of the reflexive way and stay put a bit and see what's true and open our hearts. So I'd like to talk a little about technique-wise what helps us do that. And invite you maybe at this point, as I like to do, just to make it real, if you feel like you'd like to, and sometimes it takes a bit of courage in a large group to let yourself go into something that feels vulnerable. But with that caveat, if you'd like to sense where in your life you have a relationship that you'd like to bring more 
openness, our wisdom, our healing too. It might be a place where you sense that, that matters, but you're running from something, running from what's called the not beautiful, from what's difficult. So it's a place where you want more intimacy, but something's getting in the way. In some way, there's a grasping or a running away, a fusing or an isolating. So that as, we, as you listen, you can kind of link it into this place where you'd like more freedom and wakefulness in your own life. And at the end, we'll do a little guided meditation on that. Now, as you can intuit, we avoid intimacy. We try to control our relationships because we're afraid of being hurt. And the Buddha described it that the pain and fear is unavoidable. But it's by beginning to recognize that it's going on and then facing, fully facing what's happening that we can actually transform our sense of being and be more free to love. So let's go back to the story again. What happened in the story? The fisherman ran away as he was conditioned to do and as we do. And he burrowed into the corner of his snow house And then much to his surprise, he looked up and there she was in a heap. And she was really a tangle. She was in a heap. And he really looked. And then he felt, what? A kindly impulse. So he did run, but eventually he kind of stopped and looked. Quote, to face the skeleton woman, one need not go into armed battle. One need only to care enough to untangle her bones. So each of us, in any relationship we look at, there's some tangling of where there's been reactivity. We don't have to fight. We don't have to make it perfect. We just need to care enough to pay attention. That's step one. You know, in so many fables, the path of transformation has been through touching the not beautiful caring enough to touch the not beautiful, kissing the frog or the hag. You know, these mythic images, archetypal ones. And the fear is there in all the heroes. There's always fear. But where transformation happens is there's some care that's bigger than the fear. And so there's this willingness to touch what's not beautiful. So here it is in our lives. We reflect on a relationship where we want more freedom. And the reason we'd even choose to do that is because even though there's fear and reactivity, we care. So he untangles the bones. And this untangling of the bones is meditation. The moment that we pause and that we care enough to pay attention, the untangling begins. Just pausing. Probably everyone in here has heard me speak of the sacred pause. The moment we stop running and moving and reacting and just stay put and pay attention, we're beginning to untangle the bones. We're beginning to face the life, death, life, death, life, death. In the realms of mindfulness, we describe this pausing as a way of reconnecting with the bigger picture. That as long as we're fighting and flighting, 
we are perceiving ourselves as waves in an ocean. We're separate, we're isolated, we're defective, something's wrong. But in a moment of pausing, we can begin to include the whole of what's happening. We can reconnect with an ocean of experience and include the waves, include the not beautiful, but not be victim to them. In other words, we're big enough. Pausing helps us to open into a big enough space to untangle the bones, to be with the waves. Now it's the same thing in a relationship with any of us, that, that you probably, each of you, have experienced being with someone where it's difficult and what it's like when you kind of hang in, when there's an argument, when there's pain, and if both people manage to stay, and I don't mean stay in that particular argument, but stay, that there's something about that's communicated even in the willingness to stay with that can hold or create a container for the working out. So this is again from Clarissa Estes. She says, the skeleton woman is always thrown over the cliff when one or both lovers cannot stand her or understand her. When one or both lovers cannot stand her or understand her, we have to be willing to tolerate what's difficult. And I know when I'm working with couples, it's almost like I'm not paying attention to what difficult weather is being experienced, but how much willingness to meet it there is. Mutual willingness. Clarissa again. She's thrown over the cliff when we misapprehend the use of transformative cycles. In other words, when we don't let go, when things that must die and be changed or replaced, we don't allow them to change. How can people be married for 20, 30 years and have it work if there's not a real ongoing letting go in the seasons of our lives? We all are changing. When things must die and be replaced by others, those who enter into a relationship with her, it's the acceptance of this life, death-life nature that is the enduring skill for love. So this is the challenge in any of our relationships. It's to open to the losses and the disappointments and what's unexpected and what's drying up and what's in flux and what's frightening and to stay stay and hold a space. And now I'd like to just say that that doesn't mean in any relationship we should stay. There are times that two people just for whatever reason have completed what they can complete together and they're not well matched and there's times to leave. So I'm not making a plug for you know lifelong commitment when it's inappropriate. But this is when we want to stretch the edge of where we are with someone and there is a commitment to see where it can go. And this describes a very courageous kind of love. It's the greatness of heart that has room for change and for cycles, that has room for what's difficult. Rumi speaks of night travelers who search the darkness instead of running from it, a companionship of people willing to know their own fear. In a way, this is what kindred spirits are. 
beings that have that quality of willingness to look into what's difficult and what's dark and what's dying and what's changing and be with that. So this is what the fisherman did. He was willing, he had the care to stay, to untangle the bones and he touched the woundedness and learned about impermanence. He rested in these truths and then a tear escaped from the dreamer's eye. This is what's next. What happens when we stay and see what's difficult, see what's not beautiful within our own hearts and within each other? There's a natural willing up of care, of tears. The Buddha says, there's one thing the not seeing of which keeps you bound in this world and the seeing and understanding of which brings you freedom. And that is suffering. Seeing and touching the wound, the suffering, awakens our heart. The Sufis say it a different way. They say, shatter my heart so a new room can be created for limitless love. So this is the power of the tear and healing, and it's in many, many myths that I've heard of and stories from so many cultures that the tear actually binds together and brings reunion and restores health restores life, restores wholeness. Within ourselves, when we run from sorrow, we armor ourselves. And when we finally stop running and directly feel the loneliness and really feel it and cry and feel it and cry, we've actually begun the process of connecting. Do you understand that connecting with the loneliness is the beginning of connecting? So many people I've worked with have described, and this happens a lot on retreats because it's hard to keep running away from experience when you're at a meditation retreat, of coming face to face with the sense of very deep loneliness. And that finally not running from it, but just opening to it and feeling it and feeling the tears of it. And in the tenderness of feeling loneliness, the birth of another deeper sense of belonging. We have to belong to our own pain and the pain in each other. So then there's a question that comes up because the message here in the story, in Skeleton Woman, is to stay and to pay attention and to untangle the bones and to shed the tear. And the question that comes up is, there's so much pain in this world. How do we bear it all? You know, if love is unconditional and inclusive, how do we let ourselves love everybody if there's so much pain we'd have to pay attention to? Alice Walker, who many of you know, The Color Purple, was asked this question, and I just want to read you what she said. She said, If I love deeply enough, if I love deeply enough, it is all held in that. There is room when I love deeply enough. Then she writes, the moment of suffering brings up a quality of care which somehow helps things in the right direction. So there's immediately in sensing suffering a care that has helpfulness to it, which seems to be transformative. She also said that she sometimes just has to drop everything and go into nature, just take refuge. And so there's a wisdom in how we encounter the not beautiful. 
Sometimes there's really facing and staying and untangling and feeling compassion. And other times we need to build our resilience and our sense of belonging by being in the natural world or being held by others or in some other way establishing a sense of balance and ease. So back to the story. He sheds the tear of compassion. And then she goes to sleep and then she pulls out his heart. That's his reward, (laughs) you know. (laughs) She pulls out his heart and bangs on it, chanting flesh, 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 and then her own body gets filled out and comes alive. And again, in the... Um, some of the native traditions, this kind of pulling out of the heart and this chanting represents the creative power of giving our whole hearts to life. And some of you might have had that sense when you feel a real deepening of faith or trust of kind of just giving your heart to this universe, to this world. And it's in that spirit We also so often have that awful feeling of skimming the surface, of protecting ourselves and being so cloistered and self-centered that we're not really living fully. So this is kind of the possibility of just a deep giving of one's being. Now what it requires to live in this way, to meet the not beautiful with this quality of presence, because it comes up in our day-to-day life, the angst and the fears, is an enormous patience. You'll find in meditation practice that if you sit, you'll sense the restlessness of wanting to get away from something. It's hard to tell what it is. It's very, some of the universal forces. So it requires cultivating a real patience to stay with when we're uncomfortable. Adrian Rich calls it a wild patience. I think that's so wonderful. We're in a hurry. We want to fix things. Untangling the bones isn't fixing things. It's really a deep presence and a deep listening. Stand still. The trees ahead and the bushes beside you are not lost. Wherever you are is called here, and you must treat it as a powerful stranger must ask permission to know it and be known. The forest breathes, listen. It answers, I have made this place around you. If you leave it, you may come back again, saying, here. If what a tree or a bush does is lost on you, you are surely lost. Stand still. The forest knows where you are. You must let it find you. One of the beauties of meditation practice is it teaches us how to stay here. We're so reflexive about leaving and being busy. It teaches us how to just stay and stay and stay with the absolute mystery and intensity and scariness and beauty of aliveness in this moment. Wild patience, the courage to stay with, And it's the same courage that is required in our love relationships. To patiently wait and be with the cycles, because the cycles inevitably come of what's difficult. And then in that stillness, and here's another piece of our meditation training, to listen. Listening is radical. 
We listen sometimes on a cognitive level, but we're usually computing and coming up with our responses. So we're talking here of a very deep, sacred kind of listening, where we drop our preoccupation, where we stop running, stop thinking so much, and really take in this life. And this is the path of the bodhisattva, the awakening being, to pause and to listen. And out of that, there's a natural caring that arises. This isn't some ideal about spiritual life. Each moment that you put down all the movement of running away from something or grabbing onto something and have the courage to just simply face what's true, each moment you do that deepens this quality of faith and presence this capacity for loving. So we'll end tonight by doing this guided meditation I mentioned, but first, because you've been sitting a bit, just take a moment, just stretch your legs out, don't go anywhere, and then come and sit in a way that's comfortable. And as you settle, take a moment to make sure that you're connecting with a very kind of embodied awareness. So know that you're here. Feel the breath in your body. Feel where your hands are and soften them a bit. Let the chest be open. And again, relax through the stomach area so that you can feel the movement of the breath. There's no transformative or awakening meditation that doesn't exist in the body. It's all happening right here and now in this body. Feel the center of your body, your heart and your belly. And again, sense as you do the relationship you'd like to pay attention to in this meditation. It's again a relationship where you'd like to feel more closeness, open-heartedness, where you're aware in some way that there's either fighting, grasping, blaming, distancing. So bring this relationship to mind and sense maybe a scene or a situation that epitomizes what's difficult. And let it be very visual. And if there's words, let there be words. So the more you can genuinely connect with what's real around this relationship, the more you can work with it. What bothers you so much? What's most difficult? 
what makes you want to control things push away, hold tightly what makes you blame if there's blame, what's the feeling underneath the blame? in other words, what's really asking for attention? the skeleton woman, the insecurity or inadequacy, the fear of rejection, of suffocation, of loss. Take some moment to feel what's true, where the experience of this relationship, the pushing away, the holding on, lives in your body. And be kind. Let yourself feel what's there. You can imagine that you're just saying hello to it. Okay, this is what's asking for attention about this relationship. What happens if you just say hello to it? This is recognition. Sit beside it. It's a part of your being. Since your awareness is bigger than it. So that as you breathe in, you can feel with tenderness what's difficult. But feel it in a big awareness. Breathing in, feeling what's difficult. And breathing out and sensing the bigness of awareness. the ocean. The vulnerability that you feel is waves in the ocean. Can you breathe in and in a kind way just feel what's difficult, the not beautiful. And with the out-breath sense how these waves of difficulty are in a bigger ocean of kindness. Breathe into what's asking for attention. It doesn't matter what you're aware of. If you're feeling numb or distracted or sleepy, then breathe into that. This is a practice of accepting what's real and here. Honestly. Breathing in. Breathing out. And just offering respect and care. Some space. This paying attention is the beginning of untangling the bones, of coming towards wholeness. Just feeling directly what's difficult, breathing out and offering some kindness to the place of woundedness. Notice how things change. They might get more intense, more easy. And just trust that by paying attention, this life unfolds itself. We awaken.
Take some moments to open the attention now to consider the other person involved. Sensing that this being too is running from or grasping out of fear, woundedness. That skeleton woman is making this being have a reflex to move away or grasp. So that as you breathe in, you can breathe in for that woundedness too. And breathe out whatever care or prayer seems natural to offer. opening the awareness in a comprehensive way and sense the cycles or ebbs or flows of this relationship, ups and downs, just from a larger vantage point. If you can include the sense of the, what sometimes is invisible, the most essential loving that's there. See what's beautiful. What makes you care about this relationship? And sense whatever prayer you'd like to offer to both of you. This practice of tonglen, of breathing in and breathing out, touching what's true, we always expand the circle of compassion to remember our true nature, which is connected. So let your awareness open again to sense that you're sitting in a room with a number of people, all who long to love and be loved, all of whom face the same insecurities around loss, rejection, belonging, so that you breathe in for all of us the vulnerability and breathe out the compassion for all of us. And as you do, you can let the awareness open and open to breathe in for all living beings the fears, the insecurity, the disappointments breathing out your prayer, the compassion, the kindness
And we'll close as we open with the sound current, but this time we'll be chanting ah, which again is a bij, your seed syllable of connectedness. And we'll chant it continuously, so when you run out of breath, just start chanting again. And see if you can let all the different waves of experience be held in this current, in this universal current of ah. Please inhale deeply. enlightened or what? (laughs) So um, I'd like to thank you for your participation tonight and I could feel I could feel your presence and it was I really appreciate the sincerity of you being here and checking out these things and meditating along with them. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.